I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, art historian Lizzie Dastin, myself, Justin Bua. Today, we're talking about a very, very influential artist, uh, certainly influential for me, in the street art slash gallery world, Keith Herring. Now, when I first brought up this topic to Lizzie, Lizzie was a little shy about engaging in a topic solely devoted to Keith Haring, but it's not because uh, Keith Haring is not important or doesn't deserve his own shine and spotlight, a little soapbox for Keith Haring, but it's because you don't really love Keith Haring's work. Let's be honest about I love how you bring this up. up right out of the gate, just Absolutely. throwing me under Got this it. bus right away. But uh, no, we're, we're, <laughs> this is a truth. This is about truth, and art really strips your soul and allows you to see truth. And so let's be real honest. Right away, tell me about why you hate Keith Haring so much. <laughs> oh my God. All right. That's dramatic, but I will journey you through my thought process. And it's true. When you suggested we do a whole episode to Herring, I was resistant. And I thought, let's link him to someone like Kenny Scharf or connect him to contemporary graffiti artists. And you said that you wanted to do just him isolated. And so of, of course I, I said, you know, that's a great idea. And I have said, no, you been- didn't. You didn't say it was a great idea. That's why I you're said, having fine, this. I'll do it. <laughs> exactly. Much to All your right, chagrin. All right, whatever, we're being truthful. I said, fine, I'll, I'll accept it, but only if we get to talk about one of my favorite artists next. So, right. so <laughs> Wait, okay. let me answer okay, your question. So then since I've been thinking about it, why do I think that Keith Haring is not the most representative artist to illustrate this time period and this incredibly pivotal moment or exciting hybridized moment when the street is meeting the gallery. And I think it's because Keith Haring, not his work, but who he was, represents an easy mainstream way for the traditional art world to see street art and the dirty aesthetic of graffiti as permissible. And it's because of his whiteness. And I think that just makes me uncomfortable because the fact that he was a white guy, it ameliorated the mainstream art world. And I just don't love that. And so I think that was my resistance, but he was so disruptive to the norms in some ways, and that would be his sexuality. So I'm excited to talk to him specifically through the lens of his queerness. Okay. Let us back up and get a macro vision of Keith Haring. Keith Haring was actually born in Cutstown, Pennsylvania. I know Cutstown because I actually did a performance. I do a Bua Talks and I did a I did a performance in, in Cutstown. Cutstown is in the fucking middle of nowhere. No offense for everybody listening who's from Cutstown, but Manny and I went to Cutstown in the middle of winter and it is really in in nowhere land. Uh, Keith Herring was born in 1958. And he was born to a, a father who was a car, you know, a cartoonist, and he was really into animated stuff and cartoon stuff. He was influenced by Walt Disney, and when he made his way to the city, it was during 
the time where like you know he was a child of the 70s but but in a lot of ways really came to his into his own in the 80s and you have to look at the 80s in New York City during that time when when Herring was there we're talking about Reaganomics the trickle down theory never trickled down people were getting poorer there was destitution and homelessness everywhere Reagan was financing stuff like Star Wars but taking money out of uh mental facilities like Willow Creek and Creedmoor, which were closing down and people were getting dumped onto the street in New York City. And so Keith Haring, uh, as an artist, and he goes to and he and he goes to New York, finally, as a young man, he goes to the School of Visual Arts. So he understands the academic side, the animation side, but becomes you know, obsessed like like everybody, you know, from that culture with street art with artists like Dondi and Futura and Zephyr and Scene, and he sees it all around him. He wants to be a part of it, but he has his own unique vision of this. And he starts, he sees that everything is a canvas to him. So he starts in the subway system, seeing these black boards and taking chalk and doing these very hieroglyphic-like drawings. And, you know, I used to think it was the easiest thing that he did to draw because they were essentially like hieroglyphic stick figures, but they're very difficult to draw. And he he was not only drawing this, but he was drawing it with concept. He had a lot of intelligent political and social commentary. He wasn't just, you know, an artist writing his name on the street like a lot of artists were in wild style or, you know, block letters or 3D. He was actually like messaging in hieroglyphics, graffiti hieroglyphics. So... He's getting. He is influenced definitely by the the social uh, injustices that were going on in New York City. I mean, New York City was rife with with crime, with you know politics. Ed Koch, Trump was building. By the way, back then, you know, he was had, he just basically had a license to build. So there was all you know there was all kinds of dynamics going on in the street, and I think he was seeing that and wanted to talk about like all of the stuff that he was born into, but he missed that like Martin Luther King, JFK, Vietnam thing, and then lived during the whole Reagan thing. And so a lot of his reaction to the politics, especially the inner dynamics of New York City, were coming out on the walls through his art. And not just politics, but also social issues and specifically the AIDS epidemic and also drug culture. Mm. And I'm glad that you're mentioning Reagan because he was also incredibly stifling within the space of the arts. And the whole culture wars with resistance to NEA funding to Robert Maplethorpe and Sally Mann, that's happening at this time too. And With so, Jesse Helms, not Reagan though. I mean, Jesse Helms But this was, is under the administration. Right, under the administration, but wasn't Jesse Helms? Yeah, he was instrumental, definitely, in the NEA funding and the allocations of that money. NEA, by the way, for all of you who don't know, is the National Endowment of the Arts. It's an acronym, just to clarify. Yes, thank you. And so the issue there is that very conservative thinkers under the regime and the psychological mindset of Reagan felt that taxpayers' money should not go toward art that was morally ambiguous. And I'm air quoting that right now. Mm -hmm. You guys can't see it. But the suspicion was that somebody like Robert Maplethorpe, who was photographing homoerotic scenes of S&M culture and doing that in a celebratory way. And then Sally Mann, we've talked about her, Mm -hmm. how she was photographing her children under the controversy of 
exploitation and child pornography, that governmental funding should not go toward those pursuits. And I think that Herring's choice to work on the street was also in response against that because the streets are egalitarian, they're democratic. Mm -hmm. He can voice whatever messaging he wants to on whatever surface he wants because it's self-sanctioned. And I think that concept was really exciting. And his art schooling and his whiteness and also his privilege and coming from a place that Andy Warhol came from, which meant something at the time in the art world, that all of these things made his work more palatable than some of his contemporaries that you mentioned. No, for sure. Look, you know, there's there's a couple of shots uh, of Keith Haring getting off the one train and taking a piece of chalk out and drawing on the wall. Now, if that was a black guy or a Puerto Rican dude or a Dominican dude, they'd have been like, you're going to jail. But, and he did go to jail. You know, he was definitely, you know, uh, arrested several times for writing graffiti or uh, vandalism. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been able to do what he did uh, because he had basically like a protective suit of, of whiteness over him. And that's, that is true. Um, when I would take the subways in New York going to school, my school moved from 137th Street and Covent Avenue to 66. LaGuardia High School of Music Performing Arts. Shout out to LaGuardia. By the way, that's all for you, LaGuardia people out there. But when my school moved there, I would take the train and sometimes I would get off wherever it was, 59th Street, 72nd. I would see an original Keith Haring. And I was like, damn, this guy is getting up everywhere. You know, he was he was very prolific. He was all over the city. And I love the idea, and especially during that time. You know, once again, during that time, art was moving from the gallery walls to the streets. You know, art was moving not only on subway, like these giant steel worms. These were canvases to these kids. You know, racquetball courts were canvases. Handball courts were canvases. Inside of the subway were canvases. Outside of the billboard, the advertising spaces were canvases. And Keith Haring saw everything as a canvas. And the first time I ever, you know, I think for the... Keith Haring did something that I never had seen before, which is he took the white four walls and he turned that whole thing into a canvas. You've seen that? Where he paints every single inch of four walls. I never saw that before. And I think that's what he did. He always went beyond the surface and had no boundaries. That And that was very interesting to me. And by the way, you know, once again, I'm going to stress that what he does looks super easy, but it's not because he's doing these characters, even though they're stick figures, that have a purpose and a design and kind of a hieroglyphic, just rhythmic sensibility to it that it actually works. Like the apartheid piece that he did in New York on the handball courts was like, that was powerful. And also, he did another handball court piece that's become iconic. It's called Crack is Whack. Yeah, Crack is Whack. Yeah, that one's amazing. Right. And your use of the term hieroglyphic is also appropriate because his figures, they had symbolic meaning. His most signature figure is this little baby that's radiating light beams. And I think that is illustrative of hope for the future and the innocence of youth. He also has barking dogs frequently. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's about the oppressive gaze of the P 
people in power or the political systems in power or whatever it is that could potentially be demeaning and stifling. And then he, something that I, I really have always appreciated about his figures is that they're genderless, they are not racialized, and we are not privy to their sexuality. And so there's something that is collectively unconscious about the work that he does, that it is accessible, universalizing. And to me, that's always been very energetically appropriate to art that's on the streets. I like your Jungian collectively unconscious reference. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, he... He was a, he was, you know, he was a, he was a hybrid. And so, like you said, he was not, he was not quite a graffiti writer, obviously. He was influenced by, by all the graffiti writers uh, and because of his white skin. And he wasn't, you know, he was in a lot of ways a proxy to that culture, Uh, much like Basquiat was though. You know what I'm saying? Basquiat was black and yet he was, he was taken in by Warhol and Leo Costelli because he was a proxy, because he wasn't like a rough, you know, thug kind of kid from the hood you know he wasn't from you know the bronx projects you know he wasn't from dykeman or douglas he was he was going to do the things that they needed him to do and quite honestly a lot of people from you know from the the real graph writers were like fuck that i'm doing what i want to do and so herring eventually moved to the gallery world and he moved to the gallery world with incredible success and he was he was hired all the time doing installations, doing murals. His work started to explode on merchandise. He started doing posters very successfully, keychains, T-shirts, hats. I mean, it was like at one point in the late 80s, it was like Herring was everywhere. He was like omnipresent in all facets. It wasn't just New York City, like where he was up everywhere, where he was going like all city with his work. He was literally everywhere in terms of merchandise. He became an international sensation. And by his own design, too, it wasn't just through corporate collaborations. He actually opened up his own store, which I think is a really cool, disruptive technique and an interesting way to commercialize your own aesthetic. And I think in the years since his death, so he died in 1990 at 31. He was very, very young, but he died due to complications from AIDS. And... I think that his work has been bastardized. And an example that I have of this is that I have a goddaughter and she's my little street art baby and she's the cutest thing. And I bought her an outfit at some point from Gap Kids that was a Keith Haring design. And so if Keith Haring is in Gap Kids, I don't know. I mean, I was a part of this problematic system because I bought it happily, but just he didn't seem appropriately fitted in that world. And so I just think it's interesting that we have subsumed his energy and his intention into something that is the most mainstream commercial space there is. Well, he, you know, the reality is he works in Gap Kids and and in those ways because his work is very simplistic and it's very iconographic. And it lends itself to the design kingdom as well as the art kingdom. And so in the art space, he works uh, in the gallery world because it's really cool and it feels tactile and it feels like that's something that you can hang on your wall. But at the same time, you know, he really does work uh, in a designer kind of way. And so I, I, to me, that doesn't diminish the integrity or, or the power of his work, especially his political and his social and satirical works. But I think his uh, 
you know, he's just one of those artists that's able to translate. And, and you know, it is unfortunate, but the reality is also that a Keith Haring original is going for a lot of money. They've exploited his name and work and his name and likeness and work in, in so many ways that I don't know who owns. His, that would be very interesting for me to see, like, who owns that. He must have a foundation. He must have an estate. He actually set up a foundation right before he died for AIDS awareness and fundraising. Mm. He did a mural right before he died at Art Center, so I was able to hang out with him while he was painting. And I told him, like, yo, I'm from New York, and I grew up seeing you in the city and the whole thing. I had some. He was very sick, and he was, he was definitely on his last legs, but he was still painting. And he came all the way to Pasadena, California to do a mural. And I, I must have seen him in that last year because I was, say, he died in the 90, and I was at school in, the, in, in 1990 at, at Art Center. And that's when he did that mural there uh, right across from the library. And so I, I talked to him. He was very humble, really cool, you know, definitely knew that his time was, was soon. And uh, I think he was a really important artist, you know, a pivotal artist. And I, it's one of those artists that like, I can't even believe that I love him, you know, cause I like, you know, Lion Decker and Michelangelo and Rembrandt and Sargent and all these people. But yet here all the way on the other side is this artist who's essentially drawing stick figures. Right. But they're just done in such a smart way. And I guess his work always hit me. I always felt like when I saw uh, Keith Haring was like, damn, why didn't I think of that? Like, that's what I would think when I saw the apartheid and when I would see, like, Crack is Whack. I remember driving by Crack is Whack when I was a kid being like, damn, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, that's so smart. And then I'd go home and do my own version, but it wouldn't be as good or, like, it would be way more complicated than it needed to be. So the way he's able to simplify also is difficult. And I think that's also because he grew up with a dad who was a cartoonist. And so he was able to be a cartoonist, and have enough graffiti in his work to make him unique. So he took those two worlds and for the first time blended it with a message. As were a lot of kids during that time, you know, they were, they were technically better or they were, you know, they had just way more complicated works. Works were starting to happen, but he really was able to simplify it in a way that they didn't, that they weren't able to. Yeah, I think that's right. The way that he's able to whittle down deep concepts into their essentialized elements is very approachable. And he empowered his viewers to take in the message and create their own interpretation as a result. And to me, what has always been the most significant element of his practice is his queer visibility and the way that he was able, in not a pedantic way, not a threatening way for somebody who wouldn't be supportive of that community, but just in an illustrative way, in an honest way, a factual way, explore the themes of queer culture and also delve into some of the concerns and this fear surrounding AIDS. And that, I think, was a very political and also an incredibly courageous choice. And you mentioned the rooms that he would do, these immersive interpretations of space when he would activate the ceiling and the floor. And that reminded me of the most impressive herring that I've ever seen. It's an immersive installation too, but it's in the LGB uh, community center in New York. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in the West Village, which would make sense because of Stonewall. 
but he took to the bathrooms to scrawl out these explicit homosexual sexual themes mm-hmm. and they're glorious. They are so fun and I think they're just they're they're fun, they're funny, they're celebratory, they're raunchy. And that, to me, is Herring at his best. And he parses down his color palette to black and white, which is a signature of his design, specifically from those chalkboard-style black advertisement posters that you mentioned that he would do in the subway. And I believe he did about 5,000 of those throughout the course Mm -hmm. of, of his subway jaunts. And he's echoing that aesthetic in the the community center and it's just beautiful and it's still open to the public and I would highly recommend seeing it. And then the last thing that I just wanted to note about this queerness bent to his career is that we always associate him with Kenny Scharf, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Andy Warhol, but very rarely do we connect him to the photographer Sheng Kuang Chi, who is Hong Kong born and he was just as important of a member of this community. Also a queer man. He actually passed away from complications surrounding AIDS at the same year as Keith Haring. And he was Keith Haring's unofficial photographer. And he would photograph him in all of the iconic photos that you've seen. Probably they're done by Shen Kuang Chi, maybe Annie Leibovitz, but those two were really important. Okay. That's interesting. So did I turn you into a Keith Herring lover? Do you not have so much disdain and hate in your soul for him now? <laughs> oh my God, I'm not quite that aggro. I never really had disdain for him. But do you I, love him more now that you did a little research? I do. It's okay, not good. Herring that I ever had a problem with. It's the fact that the art world would use him as their big... That they use chip. everybody. The art world uses everybody to get to where they want. The people that are bidding on the bottom floor who are these blue chip, you know, collectors, they say, hey, we need a, you know, we need a black guy now or we need a I gay know, this guy. tokenism a, is very it problematic. Is. It's totally the way that it is. And they're like, you know, it, they're, they're, they're playing a game, they're playing a system, and if you fall into it. But, you know, oftentimes you get an artist like Herring who's, who is doing stuff. You know who's doing stuff, and like Michael, like uh, Michelangelo, like Shakespeare says, stuff for the dreams that things that dreams are made of, and that's what he was doing. He was really able to do that, and he did it, and he was very prolific. Like you said, five thousand in the subway system alone. By thirty-one to be that prolific, I mean, very hard. I mean, Egon Schiele died at twenty-seven. You know, twenty-eight, twenty-seven. There have been young artists who have had great uh, careers. Uh, And I think he was one of them. Absolutely. And I think that his legacy is incredibly important today because he is a successful example of bridging the gap between the mainstream and the margins. And we always talk about those two different spaces as running concurrent to each other. But Herring's work was able to create some kind of connectivity between them. And that is really exciting. And you're right, I've softened my perspective on him and also on his collaborations with The Gap. That's okay. (laughs) And maybe it's an inroad. And that, I think, is the ultimate importance in collaborating with big brands 
is that you are forging an inroad for other people to understand the larger intentions of your aesthetic and your design. So yes, thank you, Justin Bua. I do not hate Keith Haring with as much passion (laughs) as I did yesterday. And also I wanted to thank CAA for sponsoring us. Um, Please go, if you guys are interested in checking them out, to collegeart.org. And CAA was founded ages ago in 1911. It's the world's largest support organization for professionals in the arts. And they host an annual art historians conference where over 300 professionals speak on their research and their innovations within this field. And this year, the conference is February 13th through 16th in Manhattan, On Valentine's Day, as your little romantic treat, should you be interested, I'll be speaking on public art. So definitely check out CAA. They are movers. And thank you guys so much. Thank you, guys. Peace.